Well, I'm excited you're here this morning. Uh, those of you who thought I'd never finish why I'm not an agnostic, we, we finally made it through, though I'm glad to rehash some of that if you want to. Now, thank you for being patient through nine weeks of that teaching and allowing me to plummet a little bit deeper than we normally would have. This morning, I'm going to be moving them. We've covered why I'm not an atheist, agnostic, and Buddhist. And today, we're going to open the Islamic door and study why I'm not a Muslim. And it's uh, uh, one of the major religions and faiths in the world. There are a lot of Muslims, especially in different areas of the country. The Muslim faith, like the Christian faith, like the Jewish faith, has a lot of different groups that view things a lot differently. And so you'll find some um, uh, Islamic terrorists who are uh, in a jihadi approach to purifying the world as they believe it should be purified. You have a, um, a lot of Muslim uh, people who are peaceful people who seek to live a life of peace. Uh, uh, Akeem Olajuwon is, is uh, 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 a good example that, that would come to mind in the Houston area uh, as someone who's, who's fairly famous. You've got people who are Sunnis and Shiites who are different branches. There's a whole lot of different things involved in trying to discuss the Muslim faith. And so for me to just stand up and say Muslims believe ABC, I must be very careful because it would be like someone standing up and saying Christians believe ABC when those in a Baptist church might view some things differently than those in a Methodist church or those in a Catholic church or those in a Pentecostal church or those who are Christians, they say, but don't go to church at all. And so it's... it's um, it's something where we need to be very, very careful. Those of you who know me know I'm a detail person. And, and when I'm dealing with details, I like to make sure I get them right. And I also like to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I don't like, you know, so many people say I'm not a Christian because a Christian believes ABC. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't believe ABC and I'm a Christian. You know, don't erect uh, in, in legalese, don't erect a straw man to then knock it down. Don't paint something that's incorrectly painted so that you can then kill it. And so I want to be very, very careful. And I want to talk about these things in a way that is sensitive. I would hope this is a lecture that could be seen or could be read or could be listened to and attended by a Muslim without them feeling like, uh, uh, I have painted them wrongly or unfairly or uh, uh, in, in any other way, shape, form, or fashion. So, with that as a background, I want to tell you why I'm not a Muslim. And what I need to do in this regard is figure out how to let you know this in a way that is fair to the Islamic faith and yet accurate for why I'm not there. And the best way I can do it is to tell you that there is one reason that stands out from the rest that makes it very easy for me to say, no, I'm not a Muslim. 
And that reason is what I call historical accuracy. Now, you may be thinking of that in a different way. I can probably come up with a better phrase for it than that as I work on this and think it through better. But historical accuracy is part of my job. There's one kind of case that we deal with a a good bit in our office. It is a case that involves people who have a disease, a cancer, called mesothelioma. Mesothelioma is a cancer that is caused by exposure to asbestos. Most typically, the exposure to asbestos happened 30 to 40 years before the cancer becomes manifest. In other words, it, this cancer has, in, in medical jargon, a latency period of 30 or 40 years. And so when these people come to me, Gary had a friend who was, in, who, who was down here for treatment and uh, came to our class a good bit. Uh, when these people come to me and they say, will you help me legally? Because there are, I, look, you've watched TV. Do you have mesothelioma? Call 1-800-HIRE-A-HIRED-LAWYER, gun, lawyer, whatever. <clears throat> when you have that disease, you have something that really has been caused through the um, poor choices historically of, of, of certain interests in the world, the asbestos industry, for lack of a better way of saying it. And so one of the things that I have to do as a lawyer is I have to figure out 30 or 40 years ago, where were you exposed to asbestos that might have caused this disease? That's a historical issue. Our daughter Rachel works for a firm in New York and she's got a client that's giving a deposition this week and she's trying to figure out how that client got exposed to asbestos and she calls me on the phone. She says, Dad, here's what I've walked through so far. Have I missed anything? I said, Rachel, consider this, this, this. Because asbestos as a product, we've all been exposed to it. And so it's just a question of who might get afflicted with the disease. And if you are as a lawyer, I've got to not only figure out historically how you were exposed to it, but I've got to figure out historically whether or not the companies knew about this. And so, for example, we know that the asbestos industry formed a coalition where a number of businesses got together to jointly try and fund research to show that asbestos is not hazardous. And part of the research they did was in the late 1950s. They went up to Quebec, Canada, where some asbestos mines are. And they said, we're going to study the Quebec asbestos miners to see it, not as in people under 18, but uh, working in the mine. Miners to see if they get cancer. The study is done. The results are printed up in 62, it's either 62 or 63, restricted copies. And each one says restricted copy number one or two or three of 62. Do not distribute. This is before Xerox machines, so you don't have to worry about copying. But ultimately, the the, the study gets printed up and it says, yes, asbestos causes cancer. 
And that's the exact opposite of what the funders wanted the study to say. So they took that part out of the study and they changed it to say asbestos does not cause cancer. And then they published the study. And so you've got, and, and we knew through some testimony that that had been altered. And we could look at some of the data and see the footprints of it being altered. But all of the original copies that were made of the original study had been destroyed. Or so everyone thought. But one executive evidently put his copy in his garage or attic. And lo and behold, 40 plus years later, someone's cleaning it out. And they find that restricted copy number seven. And they posted it for sale on eBay, wondering if anybody would know what it is. I just happened to be in the middle of my 12-step program for eBay addiction at the time. I'd gotten past the point of admitting I had a problem and knowing I needed higher calling for help, but I'd not yet made amends. And so I'm still there, able to buy this little puppy off eBay. And it's so important. I don't trust it to be mailed to me. I fly to Quebec, Canada to take hand delivery and keep it in a safety deposit box once I get it. It is the one example of historical truth that's accurate and reliable and authentic. And no one can challenge it. It is what it is. One of the core reasons I am not a Muslim is because of the way the Quran relates history. And when I compare the Quran to the Christian scriptures, which include the Jewish scriptures, somewhere in there, someone's got it wrong. So I want to explore the foundations of the Muslim faith by exploring the credibility of the Muslim scriptures and comparing it to the credibility of the Jewish and Christian scriptures. When I reference Jewish and Christian scriptures, both Jews and Christians, in general, Orthodox, believe in what we in, in, in modern Christian parlance call the Old Testament. Christians not only see the Old Testament as scriptures, but they also see the New Testament is scriptures. There are some Catholic Christians and others who also see the intertestamental writings as scripture. I leave those out of this discussion for now because I'm concentrating on the what we would call the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so somewhere between the Quran, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, we need to figure out which are the most valid source for our historical knowledge, which can then inform our theology and our understanding of God and faith. Make sense? The reason this is true is because Judaism and Christianity and Islam 
are all history-based religions. I've put them in that order because that's the order they historically became numerous. Jews first. The Jewish faith is a history-based faith that says these Jews by birth are descendants of Abraham. Originally, Avram. And Abraham, through Sarah, has Isaac. And Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has the twelve sons. And through those twelve sons come twelve tribes. And from those tribes established the nation of Israel. And ultimately that nation gets a king named Saul. And upon Saul's death, the kingship passes to David. And upon David's death, the kingship passes to Solomon. And upon Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided. And Jeroboam and Rehoboam become kings, one in the north and one in the south. And the northern tribes ultimately get destroyed and carted off by Assyria. The southern tribes continue to thrive and live with Jerusalem as their, their, their holy city until the Babylonians come and conquer them. But even in the midst of the Babylonian captivity, the southern tribes, which include the tribe of Judea, those southern tribes become what we now know as Jews. The northern tribes become what we consider the lost tribes of Israel. But those southern tribes become Jews at that point, and they get to come back into Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple, what we call the second temple, that lives up until, that thrives up until the time it's destroyed by the Romans. It is in the context of that history that there is a fella named Joseph who is betrothed to be married to a young lady named Mary. Mary is found to be pregnant even though she and Joseph have not had any sexual intimacy. Mary is pregnant. Joseph is going to divorce her because even though they're not technically married, it's a divorce proceeding once you're betrothed under Jewish law. Joseph's going to divorce her, but is visited by an angel who says, don't do that. This child's of God. She hasn't known any man. She hasn't been unfaithful to you. This is a miraculous virgin birth. And something was persuasive enough. Joseph believes it. The child is born. All of these things happen or attendant to the birth. Joseph is told to go to Egypt to escape a mad king. He comes back. They settle in Nazareth. Jesus works as a carpenter in his father's trade until he becomes about 30. And then he starts a ministry that lasts for just three years. But in that ministry, he proclaims the kingdom of God. And in proclaiming the kingdom of God, he is ultimately taken by the power structure to be a threat. 
So the power structure of Temple Judaism manages to use the Roman Empire to put this Jesus of Nazareth to death. Three days later, the Christian faith teaches, he is physically resurrected from the dead, appears to hundreds of people, and you have a mass conversion of Jews into uh, an affiliated following. It's not called Christianity initially. It's a following of the way. These are people who believe they know the way that God has made for humans to become right with God again. That way is Jesus. And so these followers of Jesus are getting persecuted by the same temple authorities that were persecuting Jesus. Even to the point of being put to death. But they were so convinced by what they had seen that they will willingly die rather than turn away from their belief. They're glad to give their lives because they saw the resurrected Jesus. Because Thomas was able to put his fingers in the nail holes and see that it wasn't a vision. Within 10 years of the death of Jesus, the principal persecutor of the Christians, the, 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 the chief justice of the Supreme Court's hand-picked student, enforcer, the attorney general, for lack of a better way of saying it, for Israel, Saul, who has a Roman name, Paul, Saul or Paul, who's enforcing the death penalty, has an encounter with a resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus that causes him to do a complete 180 in his life. He loses his power, he loses his position, he loses his money, he loses his family, he loses his most likely to succeed status. He abdicates it all for a life of poverty on the road being beaten, being ridiculed, being scourged, being robbed, with no assets, with no place to call home, being hungry, being jailed and incarcerated, being shipwrecked, being arrested and moved around from jail cell to jail cell while conspiracies plot to try and bring him to death because he's having such a powerful effect. Here is the man who had everything, who gave it up for this Jesus. And he's writing about this within 10 to 15 years of the death of Christ. And there are a lot of skeptics out there that say, well, the Gospels weren't written until very late. And they weren't written by eyewitnesses and blah, 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 blah. We're going to talk about that. But before we do, I'll just say even the skeptics cannot run from the fact the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians probably within 10 to 15 years of the death of Jesus. He's writing the Corinthians and explaining that Jesus was physically resurrected on the third day, enlisting witnesses that can be talked to, and says there's well over 100 people still alive who saw him physically. And say, you got a choice. I'm either a nut job who has given away his entire life for an apparition, 
or I'm a sane person who has been transformed and changed by Jesus Christ. And you read his writings, and look, if you want to read the musings of a madman, I've represented some whack jobs before, and I'll give you some of the stuff they've written. These are not the writings of a, of, of a whack job. Those faiths are based upon history. The Islamic faith is no different. The Islamic faith is based upon the experiences of Muhammad and what he was instructed to recite or read or write, depending upon how you translate the Arabic word. So the question for me is, which of these have the more reliable history? And i got to tell you, I don't find the history recited in the Quran reliable or accurate. No disrespect intended. Now, to make a discussion point on this, let's be real clear from the outset. I find that there is a great difficulty built into, or an inherent difficulty, inherent meaning it's built just into the fiber of this. There is an inherent difficulty in reasoning with people from history. The reason why is, Our lives are built on history. Yes, I had a birthday this week. I turned 56 years old. My mom was there at my party. My mom's sitting right over here. Do you know how I know she's my mom? She told me. I really don't have any memory of it. And I've got a pretty good memory. And don't get me wrong. She's been telling me that as long as I can remember. Did she steal me at the hospital just so my older sister Catherine wouldn't be alone and would have someone to pester her for the rest of her days? Possible. But I'm going with the integrity of my mom that I've learned throughout my 56 years. To dislodge me from that memory will be very difficult for you. Because our histories and what we rely upon become part of the fabric of who we are and our identity. So for me to say to a Muslim, I find the history in the Quran to be inaccurate. First is a blasphemous statement from their perspective, even though I say it respectfully. But even beyond that, It's going to be really hard for them to set aside the inherent bias that comes with that history becoming part of who we are. It's trying to tease out certain threads in a tapestry without dissolving the picture of who they are. And it's really hard to do. It's no different than you and I. For someone to say to us, we find the history of Christianity to be invalid is something that I would be hard-pressed to accept because it's so much part of the fabric of my life and identity. But that doesn't mean that we should not examine 
And it doesn't mean that we should not objectively try to say, I'm going to put all of my effort into setting my bias aside and trying to use common sense, logic, and fairly deduce the truth. And it's something I want to do for my Christian faith. If I were Jewish, I'd want to do it for my Jewish faith. If I were Muslim, I'd want to do it for my Islamic faith. Because that's how we can figure out if we're standing on truth an illusion or some combination of the two. So, we need a little background and the goal this week is some background, historical background, and then the goal in two weeks when we rejoin this part of this class is going to be to compare some of the history as given in the Quran with other historical sources And then we'll spend a week or two talking about why we can find the Bible to be reliable. Are there four different gospel accounts? Or is there one event? What about these so-called inherent contradictions in Scripture? How reliable are the Scriptures we have today compared to what might have been written over 1900 years ago? So that's where we're headed with this segment. Does that make sense? So join me and let's go back into history. We know the Roman Empire pretty well because most of us grew up in Western civilization. You grow up in Western civilization, you're part of, you're, you and your history is the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire takes over the world by the time of Christ. And by the world, we mean that little fragment of the world that's around the Mediterranean. If you fast forward into the 500s, the Roman Empire has now sort of dissolved. Go back into the 300s and the Roman Empire was divided into two sections. You had the eastern section over here and you had the western section over here. The western section was ruled from Rome or at times from modern day Croatia or northern Italy, but the western section was very much based out of the, what, what we would consider the Roman culture. The eastern section was from the city of Constantinople, named that, we call it Istanbul today, but it carried that name because Constantine had that as his source of as his seat of government. That was his Washington, D.C., for lack of a better way of saying it, in American speak. That was his London in English speak. So Constantine renames it Constantinopolis. Polis is the Greek word for city. So it's the city of Constantine is what it was if we translate it. So the city of Constantine rules the eastern half. Now, that doesn't mean that that was the whole world. Persia still has an empire. The Sasanian Empire is in modern Iran and Iraq is over here too. So you've got the Sasanian Empire and then you've got down here on the Arabian Peninsula a lot of nomadic tribes. 
Now, there were big differences between the Eastern Roman Empire, we call it the Byzantine Empire. Byzantium was the name of Constantinople before it was renamed Constantinople. The Byzantine Empire. So we've got the Byzantine Empire, the, what's left, the remnants of the Roman Empire, and then we've got the Sasanian Empire, and these nomadic tribes, those are the three different groups that we need to talk about right now. There were big differences in these groups. Big differences in a lot of different ways. The Roman Empire used still, mainly at that point, Greek. But if you go west, they still had Latin. So you've got a Greek and Latin language. Not so the Sasanian Empire with its Semitic languages and the nomadic tribes. Those languages, vastly different. Greek and Latin are Indo-European languages. If you get as far as Iran and you get into the Sanskrit, that's also Indo-European, but not the Arabic that was used in the nomadic tribes in the Sasanian Empire. So you've got language differences. You've got cultural differences that are vast and huge. In Byzantium, in Byzantine world, the official religion is Christianity. Now, Jews are allowed to live there. And others are allowed to live there. But you had a state-enforced Christian religion. And by that I mean, if you were deemed a Christian heretic, you not only got kicked out of the church, you got kicked out of the empire. You had to leave. If you look at the Sasanian Empire, the main religion that it had had for centuries was Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism believed that there is a good God and there's an evil demon. And the good gods with good deeds and the evil demons with bad deeds. And you live your life and you put it in the balance. And at the end, if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, you go to paradise. If the bad deeds outweigh the good deeds, you go to torment. And that's why the Zoroastrians were fine with anybody else's religion. Cyrus the Great, who said, yeah, go rebuild the temple. He was a Zoroastrian. It's kind of like, hey, do good deeds, let them outweigh the bad deeds. Go worship the gods wherever you've got them, whatever you got going on is fine. Very different religious atmosphere. The Arab, uh, the nomadic tribes in, in Saudi Arabia worshipped tribal gods. They were by and large polytheists. These nomadic tribes, now, there was... There was interaction between these, by these I mean the, the Roman remains, the Byzantine kingdom versus the Sasanian Empire, especially because they all wanted the treasures that came from the east. They were all real into getting Indian spices and silk and all of this kind of stuff. And the caravan routes were something of great value and treasure. So there was a lot of warring and fighting that went on. In fact, the Byzantines and the Sasanian, by the time Muhammad comes around, they've basically depleted each other's source resources, fighting each other for decades and decades and decades. Sometimes the nomadic tribes would help the Sasanians. Sometimes they'd help the Byzantines. But they depleted themselves by the time Muhammad comes out. Now, these nomadic tribes were family-based. 
These are the true Arabs. We have a tendency in 21st century America, at least, to think of Arabs as people from the Middle East. The true Arabs are descendants from these Arabian nomadic tribes. Not, for example, the Palestinians are not true Arabs. To the extent the Palestinians have ultimately come from sea peoples. In the Bible, they were called Philistines. But there's a, and there's been a lot of intermarrying and there's been a lot of changes and all, so you can't just draw sharp lines of division. But historically, these are the, the situations. So these nomadic tribes are family-based. They're not empire-based. They're not in big cities by and large. So they don't have bakers and they don't have the trades of blacksmiths and they don't have a lot of that stuff. There are a few, but most of the nomadic tribes are taking care of their flocks and their caravans are going around. So let's look at them. Here are the three key parts. You live in a tent, that's your family. Big tents, big family. The groups of families that gathered together and traveled together were called clans. Those clans, when you add them together, they become tribes. So you've got these nomadic tribes of loosely affiliated clans of traveling together families. There's a lot of intermarriage within the families, within the clans, and within the tribes. That's the structure of things. Now, by the time Muhammad is born, we don't know exactly when that is, but we suspect it to be about 570 in this era. By the time Muhammad is born... That's our situation. Muhammad is born in a city or a town called Mecca. Mecca is where I've put the star there. He's born in Mecca. Now, Mecca is famous at the time as a place where a lot of the tribes would come and worship their various gods. So, for example, there was already in Mecca a Kaaba. The Kaaba is now what you see here built out of stone at the and covered with cloth from Egypt. At the time, it was probably built out of wood. And it was based upon the idea that there had originally been a spring there. There was a spring, the Zamzam spring. And the way the Quran tells the story and the way Muslim history tells the story, Abraham, go all the way back to biblical Abraham, Abraham has a son... Through Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, that son gets sent off with Hagar because Sarah got jealous. So Ishmael gets sent off with Sarah and Abraham takes them and deposits them near a spring. Ishmael, the little infant, young boy, hears the spring and the gurgling sound to him Sounds like zoomy, 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 zoomy. So that becomes the Zamzam Spring. And that's where the name came from. Supposedly, Abraham and his son built the original Kaaba. And this again is in the scriptures. So now, where does Muhammad fit in with his family, clans, and tribes? Here at the Zamzam well, different people had different responsibilities in Mecca. It's a way that the tribes collected their money. 
And one of the tribes was responsible for dispensing water from the Zamzam well. So that tribe was the Quraysh tribe. The Quraysh tribe is made up of different families including and clans, including the Hashemite clan. In fact, if you ever go to Jordan, Jordan is formerly, formally called the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Because the king of Jordan has, and he's, they've got it on the wall. He traces his family all the way back to the Hashemite clan and Muhammad. And they've got the lineage going all the way back. They're the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. That's one reason Jordan has got so much honor in some ways among the Arabic world. Now, Muhammad comes from a family within the Hashemite clan. Muhammad's father dies when he's very young. His mother dies when he's very young. And by the time he's seven, eight, or nine, he's an orphan. He's still living in the family tents, but he doesn't have a mom and dad still alive. There are some non-Islamic writings that talk about how he encountered between the ages of nine and 11 some Syrian monks who'd been kicked out of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, several hundred years earlier and had established a monastery in the uh, 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 Syrian area. Those monks that were kicked out were kicked out with their leader, a fellow named Nestorius. And he was kicked out of the Roman Empire, what was left of it, the Byzantine Empire, because of his heretical views on the deity of Jesus. I can go into that in a lot more depth. We have a ton of writings on that, historical writings on it. It's, 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 it's a gimme. But it's a very important part of this. Because in some ways, the heresy of, of the views of Jesus that the Nestorians and others took and then continued to develop are reflected in the views of Jesus that Muhammad and the Muslim world have as reflected in the, the Quran and other early Muslim writings. So Muhammad has some kind of an encounter. Muhammad continues to grow up. He becomes a very respected caravan leader. And one of the things historically he did is he led in the restoration of the Kaaba. So the Kaaba had been falling down. The four main tribes decided that, that it should be uh, restored. One of the key things in the Kaaba is a stone that everybody would kiss. And uh, they, they pull the stone out. Muhammad leads the restoration. Then all four tribes start fighting over who gets to place the stone back. So while they're having a fight about it, they decide whoever's the next person to go into the Kaaba is, is whatever tribe he's with is the tribe that gets to place it. Muhammad happens to be the next one that goes in. They say, ah, the Quraysh tribe gets to replace it. Muhammad, being a smart fella, says, we're going to do it this way. Four tribes want to do it. Put the stone on a blanket. Four corners of the blanket. All four tribes pick up a corner. We'll take it in together. And it's replaced. Now, by the time Muhammad hits the age of 40, he's out caravanning around. And he goes up on Mount Hira and he hears a command to write, read, read, recite. Depends on how you, you, you interpret the Arabic. And Muhammad becomes the messenger responsible 
for delivering God's message in the Quran. He is what Joseph Smith claims to be later. He is the person who says, God's given me the revelation. This is his word. And the Quran is to be understood and read in Arabic. My Arabic is horrible. Especially my classical Arabic, which is what this would be. So I use an English translation, though we need to recognize that in the Arabic world, a, a lot of people won't even go there. So a lot of Muslims can't even read the original Arabic scriptures and have to depend upon their imam or imam to tell them what it is. But Muhammad claims to be the messenger. And a general teaching is that Muhammad is talked about in both the Old and New Testaments, the Jewish writings and the Christian New Testament writings. And here's a passage that's frequently given for referring to Muhammad, the messenger. It's from John 16, 7 through 14. This is Jesus talking to his apostles right before his crucifixion. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's good, I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Now, Christian doctrine teaches that the counselor is the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men don't believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. Now, that's the premise for Muhammad, according to Islam. From a Christian perspective, the counselor is not talking about Muhammad, but the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit of truth. You can go back two chapters earlier in John, and Jesus makes it clear. But you can also get it here because the counselor is coming because men don't believe in Jesus. He's coming, the spirit of truth, to bring glory to Jesus. That's what he comes for. Now, this was a mistake, if you will. That's an honest mistake, an easy-to-understand mistake. In the Greek, you have a word, parakletos. Uh, whoops. Sorry, I'm combining English and Greek letters. That won't work at all. Parakletos. The parakletos in Greek is the word for a lawyer, an advocate, a counselor, one who's called alongside to give help. And that's the word used in John for the Holy Spirit or the counselor. But Muhammad claims that was him, as or the Muslims do, as the messenger. The problem is the Greek word that they're confusing 
Periclitos. Sounds the same. Almost looks the same. But it's a different word. Jesus doesn't say, I'm sending a messenger. He says, I'm sending the counselor. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And so this whole concept, and you can see it from other passages, this whole concept is, is part and parcel of what's wrong for me with the Muslim scriptures. You've got to make a choice. What's going to be more reliable? The Quran, the Bible, Christian scriptures, and Old Testament. That's the choice you've got to make. So Muhammad manages to unite the entire Arabian Peninsula, basically. They all follow him with the disarray of the Sasanian Empire and the disarray of the Byzantine Empire. They get a big toehold. Christianity stays part of the Arab world, however. And it's really interesting. Right about two years before Muhammad dies, he gets a visit from 60 Christians and their bishop. And they try once again to explain to him the deity of Jesus. Because Muhammad teaches that Jesus was a prophet who said another prophet would come that would be Muhammad. Through that misunderstanding of the John passage and uh, some others, including some in Deuteronomy. But if you look at it, you'll find it, it interesting. So, for example, in the Quran, Quran 2.62 what it has to say. The Muslim believers, the Jews and the Christians, and the Sabians, now we don't really have Sabians much anymore, but they were a uh, monotheistic uh, religious community. They were also believed in one God. All those who believe in God in the last day and do good will have their rewards with the Lord. No fear for them, nor will they grieve. You're thinking, well, then why are these ISIS people killing all the Christians? Well, you got different passages in this book that sometimes say different things in different places. So you've got passages like chapter 5, verse 9, which starts out reading the same, but has a little bit of change in it. The Muslim believers, the Jews, the Sabians, and the Christians, those who believe in God in the last day and do good deeds, will have nothing to fear or to regret. It continues. We took a pledge from the children of Israel and sent the messengers to them. Whenever a messenger brought them anything they didn't like, they accused some of lying and put others to death. They thought no harm could come to them and so became blind and deaf to God. God turned to them in mercy, but many of them again became blind and deaf. God's fully aware of those actions. Those who say God is the Messiah. Those are Bible-believing Christians. Son of Mary. Although the Messiah himself said, Children of Israel, worship God, my Lord, and your Lord, have defied what he said. If anyone associates others with God, God will forbid him from the garden, and hell will be his home. No one will help such evildoers. And so this is what we've got to do. I want us to dissect the Quran. I want us to compare it to Christian scriptures, including the Jewish scriptures. I want us to try and figure out where historical accuracy lies and where it doesn't. I want to examine the integrity of those scriptures and see which are reliable. And as we do so, you'll understand why I am not a Muslim. Points for home. 
John 16, Jesus said, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will bring glory to me, to Jesus. I love that passage. I want my life filled with the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit working in me. My commitment this week, I'm going to try and do it every day. I want to wake up every morning with this commitment in my heart. I want to think about it at lunch. I want it to so permeate my being that it's with me all week long, every day, the following. I want to bring glory to Jesus. I want my life, my actions, my deeds, my words to bring glory to Jesus. Point from number two. Paul, within 15, 20 years of the death of Jesus, writes, Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, on which you've taken your stand. By this good news, you're saved. Gospel means good news. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. This is a historical fact. This isn't a feel-good religion. This is a history-based religion, and I'm guided by historical faith. I'm not doing something that just seems to feel good or fit my philosophy of the day. This is not my religion de jour. This is my religion of truth. And I want to let that guide my life. Finally, if we, Paul wrote this 10 plus years after the death of Christ, 15 years. If we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, a good news other than the one that we preached to you. Let him be condemned. See, truth's an important thing. I want to determine truth. And when I determine it, I want to stand on it. Regardless of the cost. So we'll pick back up there in two weeks. Can I bless you? Father, I bless my friends and family and, and those listening in the name of Jesus that you would uh, open our hearts that you would uh, uh, open our eyes, that you'd clean out our ears, that you'd soften our, our hard edges and, and bring us to a place to see your hand in our history and the difference it makes to us today. Make us powerful witnesses of your truth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.